I don't know what you were doing on Saturday morning, October the 7th. Got to take your mind back just a few weeks, but I was home and my phone rang. It was my dad. He said, have you seen what's happening in Israel? I said, I haven't even had the television on yet. He said, turn the TV on and call me back. I did. And I saw what you saw. A terrorist organization headquartered in Gaza, an evil, demonically inspired organization, had launched over 3,000 rockets into the nation of Israel, overwhelming the Iron Dome that Israel has to protect against incoming missiles and rockets. And not only did they fire those rockets, but they invaded the land of Israel, taking over 240 Jewish people into Gaza as hostages, killing approximately 1,400 Jewish people, and seriously injuring almost 5,000 others. When this happened, we saw later that day that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel declared war against Hamas. And let me say that I think we would all agree that the nation of Israel has a right and a responsibility to defend herself. The reason that Prime Minister Netanyahu declared a war was because in the charter of Hamas, their stated objective is to destroy the nation of Israel. They do not recognize Israel as a nation. They hate the Jewish people. And their agenda is to wipe Israel right off the map. And so Prime Minister Netanyahu declared war and has said, now it is our responsibility to destroy this Hamas, this terrorist organization. That was on October the 7th. 20 days later, the nation of Israel uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, and if you have followed that, over 300,000 reservists have come up to fight in addition to the military that they already had in place, and now they have moved into Gaza, and they're going after and trying to root out Hamas. Now, thousands of people, Palestinian and more Jewish people, have died. It is a bloody, bloody War. Now, as we have watched this unfold before our eyes, last week there was a rally in Washington, D.C., pro-Israel rally. We're also seeing, not only across the nation, but around the world, Palestinian rallies and protests. And it makes us wonder, as a Christian, as a Bible-believing Christian, where am I to stand on this? What am I to believe about all of this? And so what I hope to accomplish in this sermon today, I want us to think in just a moment about the source of the conflict. Why is there this strife in the Middle East today? Secondly, I want us to think about the stage that is being set for end time events. And then I want us to think about the significant role that the church plays or can play in this whole situation. Now, I think I can have all three of those things covered and still have you home for Thanksgiving lunch on Thursday. That is my objective. That is my goal today. But let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter number 12. And let's begin by thinking about the source of the conflict. And the simplest way that I know to say this is simply this. The conflict today is over the land. They're fighting over land. That's what the fight is all about. The Palestinians say, this is our land. The Jews say, this is our land. The Arab world largely says that land does not belong to Israel. They're, they don't even recognize largely the nation of Israel. We'll get into that in just a moment. Now, 
In Genesis chapter 12, we get the very beginning of God's conversation to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of our faith. And we see that God made a promise to Abraham that he was giving this land. We know it today as the Holy Land, the nation of Israel. God said to Abraham, I'm giving this to you and to your descendants. But let's just read this. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will make you and your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. There is a blessing that is laid aside for those who bless the Jewish people and for those who bless the nation of Israel. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We read in the book of Zechariah these words, he who touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. Now, God loves us all, and he loves us all the same. But God has always had a special relationship with the Jewish people and with the people of Israel. Verse number four, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was, or Abram at this point, was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, that is his nephew, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham, or Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so it is clear here that God is promising this land that at this time was being occupied and lived in by the Canaanites. God had determined in his mind to give that land to Abraham and to his descendants. In fact, in chapter 13, we see this even more fully expounded. And verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. The promise is clear. Now, what has caused the problem then and now is that Abram had these two sons. First, Ishmael. That was the son he had through Hagar. And then Isaac, the son he had through his wife, Sarah. Ishmael is regarded by everyone I know anything about as the leader, the beginning of the Arab race. So Ishmael is the beginning of the Arab race. Isaac is a continuation of the Jewish uh, people. So you have these two sons. And so when God says, Abraham, I'm giving you this land, and I'm giving it to your descendants. Well, the question is, which son? Does it come through Ishmael and to the Arabs, or does it come through Isaac and to the Jews? So let's just let's develop this a little bit. Go to chapter number 21, because it begins, it's clearer as we go. In chapter 21 and verse number eight, by this time, Hagar has born a son named Ishmael. He's 13 years of age, and Sarah now has given birth to Isaac, He's not very old at all, but in verse eight we read, so the child, that is Isaac, grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. 
And Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, was scoffing Isaac, making fun of Isaac. So big brother Ishmael is, is poking fun and making fun of little, of little Isaac. Therefore, Sarah said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. In other words, Sarah's saying, send this lady away and send her son away. Well, you can imagine that broke Abraham's heart because Ishmael was also his son. And in verse 11, the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. One translation says, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And so God is saying, when it comes to the land, yes, you have Ishmael and you have Isaac, but the promise is going to be traced not through Ishmael, but it's going to be traced through Isaac. Now turn a few pages to Genesis chapter 26. This even becomes clearer. In Genesis 26, God now is speaking to Isaac. And he says this in verse three, dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants, I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. And so at this point, it is becoming, it's become very clear that the land is for Abraham's descendants through Isaac. Now turn a page or two more, chapter 28. And in verse number 13, we read about Jacob. This is Isaac's son, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we read in verse 13, behold, the Lord stood and said to Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now God is making it even clearer now. Now you're down to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And God is saying to him, the land is for you and it is for your descendants. This is the promise that I made to Isaac, your father, and to his father, Abraham. Now go to chapter 32 and find verse 28. This is the story about Jacob and God wrestling all night and Jacob wouldn't let go. He said, I will not let go until you bless me. And he was seeking God with all of his heart. And so in verse 28, God said to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And so now God is naming Jacob Israel. Israel means prince with God. And it is God's way of saying this land, this what we call the holy land, it is for, for you and it is for your descendants. And so when God spoke to Abraham, if we wanted to date this, and I'm giving very loose numbers for those of you who are historians, but if we wanted to date this, in about 2000 BC, God made this promise to Abraham. In approximately 1500, 1400 BC, Joshua, after Moses had died, Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River going into the promised land. Now it's being lived in by the Canaanites and all these other people. And God said, drive them out. This is the land that I have for you. And they drove them out and they occupied and possessed the land that God had for them. Fast forward a few hundred more years. Now about 1000 BC, 
David is the king of Israel. And so David goes into Jerusalem and on Mount Zion there, he sets up the capital of Jerusalem there. So now Jerusalem is the clear capital city of, of Israel. And there's David in 1000 BC establishing that. And there the Jewish people are. They're in their land. They're living where God told them to live. They're experiencing what God wanted to happen. But as the years go by, so often is the case, even after God has blessed us and been good to us and answered our prayers and given us what we've prayed for and wanted for, so many times our hearts turn more towards God's blessings than toward God. Instead of seeking God's face, now we're just seeking God's hand. I want to know what I can get out of this whole relationship with God. And that's kind of what happened to the Jews. Even worse than that, though, they began to worship other gods, false gods, and, and they turned their back on God after all this that he had done for them. And so God raised up one prophet after another, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others. And the message was to the Jewish people, if you don't repent of this spiritual adultery, how you now worshiping these false gods. God said, I'm gonna uproot you from the land. I'm gonna drive you out of the land, this land that I promised Abraham, that I gave to Joshua, that, that David has come in and, and taken hold of. I'm telling you, I'm driving you out. And God gave them warning after warning after warning after warning. They refused to repent. And so the judgment came. In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invades Jerusalem with his army, destroys the temple, and carries the vast majority of the Jewish people out of the promised land, out of Israel, into Babylon. And for 70 years, they're in captivity. They're living now out of the land that God had given to them. 70 years later, God is a God of mercy. God is a God of second chances. God brings the Jewish people back home. God says, rebuild the temple. He says to Nehemiah, rebuild the walls around the temple. They get the temple rebuilt. Zerubbabel's temple now is what it's called. They get the walls rebuilt. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And they live there for several hundred years. Fast forward now to the time of Christ. Jesus, born in Israel, ministering in Israel, uh, dying, of course, living and dying in Jerusalem and being buried there and rising again in Jerusalem. But before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, do you see all these beautiful buildings in this temple? Now Herod's, Herod has expanded Zerubbabel's temple. Solomon built the first temple, then Zerubbabel, and Herod expanded on Zerubbabel's temple. It's a beautiful, beautiful temple. And Jesus said to his disciples, as he said on the Mount of Olives, do you see all these beautiful buildings? Yeah, we see them. Jesus said, I'm telling you, not one stone will be left on another. They're all going to be destroyed. They didn't understand what that meant. But in 70 AD, the Romans, under their general Titus, came into Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and the Jewish people, beginning in 70 AD, were scattered throughout the whole world. Now, what I want you to see is this. Beginning in 70 AD, for the next almost 1,900 years, the Jewish people did not live in Israel. I'm not saying there were no Jews in Israel, but there weren't many. The majority, they're living in Poland. They're living in Russia. They're scattered all over the world. They're living in Germany. Millions of them uh, in the Holocaust are, get, were killed. It's horrible what happened to the Jewish people. They're the most persecuted people in the history of the world. And so this is for 1,900 years. At the end of that time, at the end of almost 1,900 years, a miraculous thing began to happen. And that is God began to regather the Jewish people 
back to the land that he had promised to Abraham in 2000 BC. So we're talking almost 4,000 years now. God is bringing the people, the Jewish people back to their land. Now, don't look this verse up, but let me give it to you. You can write it down. In Isaiah chapter 11, in verse number 11, notice what it says. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush. And he lists all these places where they've been scattered to. Verse 12, he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel and, to get, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. God said there's coming a day when for the second time, the first time was when he brought them back from Babylon. The second time was in the 1900s. I mean, God is making a promise here that was not fulfilled till, till almost 1900 years, after, or more than 1900 years after the time of Christ. That for a second time, after my people have been scattered, I'm bringing them back into the promised land. And that's exactly what he did. And on May the 14th, 1948, the nation of Israel was reborn after so many had been regathered and brought back to Jerusalem. The Hebrew language, that was for all practical purpose, purposes dead for almost 2,000 years, is brought back, and, and, and brought back into existence now. It was absolutely a miraculous thing. Now, for those 1,900 years, you say, who was living in the Holy Land? Well, not the Jews. They're all over everywhere. So you have these Arabs living there, and they began to be known as Palestinians. So they're Palestinian Arabs, but they're Arabs, but they live in, we sometimes hear the name Palestine. And so they feel like, hey, this is our land. We, we have lived here for all these years since the Jews left and said, this is our land. Now, I want to show you a map because I think this map will help us to understand uh, the mindset of the Middle East. Certainly, we believe the land belongs to Israel. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe the land belongs to the Jews. Certainly, in this conflict, we stand with Israel. We condemn Hamas and all acts of terrorism. But I want to show you this map just to help you get in the mind of the Arab world. So we see on the map here uh, the Mediterranean Sea to the, to, the, to the left there, to the west. And there you see Israel. And right below Israel is Gaza. This is where the conflict is. To the north of Israel is Lebanon. This is where Hezbollah is stationed, another terrorist organization. In fact, Hezbollah is more powerful and better organized than Hamas. And then you have Syria and then Jordan, behind that Iraq, and then Iran. You see Egypt down to the south. Now, with the exception, here's what's interesting. With the exception of Jordan and Egypt, these other nations, and I'm not talking about everybody that lives in the nation, I'm talking about the governments, the authorities in these nations, they don't recognize that Israel is a nation. They don't recognize Israel. And so what they say is, Israel is occupying land that our brothers lived in for 1900 years. And so they call the Jewish people occupiers. Now, Jordan and Egypt, even though those, their relationship with Israel, I would say, is, is, is not great. It's somewhat cold. But they have signed peace treaties through the decades, and they have recognized the state of Israel. But these other nations don't recognize. And so in their minds, they just think, if we could just drive the Jews out, 
then the whole region over here could be the Arab people. We wouldn't have these Jews. So that's how they look at it. Whereas the Jews are looking at it from a biblical perspective and they're saying, but this is the land that God has given to us. And so that's what the conflict is. Now this this next picture I want to show you is a picture of a Muslim mosque in Jerusalem built in the seventh century AD. And this mosque is built on the temple mount in Jerusalem. To the Muslim, Jerusalem is the third most holy spot in the world. The first most holy spot is Mecca, Saudi Arabia. That's where Muhammad was born. The second most holy spot for them is in Medina, Saudi Arabia, where Muhammad ended up beginning kind of what you would call his his life mission and his life work and assembling his followers. But the Muslim says it was in Jerusalem that Muhammad had some night vision and he was taken up into heaven. And so it is there that they have been, this is the, that mosque that you just saw is the oldest Islamic piece of architecture in the whole world. And so the Muslims have it there and they're saying, this is where Muhammad went to heaven. And the Jews are looking at that and they're saying, but this was the temple mount. This was Solomon's temple. This was Zerubbabel's temple. This was Herod's temple. And this belongs to us. And so there is this constant conflict, but the conflict is about the land. Now, you still with me? Say amen. That was a weak amen. If you're still with me, say amen. Okay. Now, how about the stage? What is happening? You know, so many times we look at this and we look at it just from a political perspective. And as I have said, we said, we condemn Hamas, we condemn terrorism, and we do we stand with Israel. The land belongs to them. They have a right to, the, to defend themselves. They have a responsibility to defend themselves. They're not doing anything different than America or any other nation wouldn't do had they been attacked or had we been attacked like they were attacked. They're doing the same thing. They should do, They have to do that. But if we're not careful, we only look at things like this from a political perspective. And we all want to make a stand and make a statement and let everybody know how we believe. I mean, that's kind of what's happened to the world where everybody wants to make a statement on everything and that's fine to make a statement. I've just made mine. But I'm saying to you today, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than just fighting for land and it's bigger than just the politics of this deal. There is a spiritual thing happening here that if we're not careful, we miss it. You say, well, what's happening? I'll tell you exactly what's happening. The stage is being set for the Antichrist to emerge. The stage is being set. You can, as bad as things are right now in the Middle East and in the world, can you imagine what this world will be like after the rapture of the church? Billions of people immediately taken away. David Jeremiah calls it the great disappearance. What in the world is it gonna be like when, when all, of the, all of us who are Christians are taken up to heaven and people are gonna wonder where they go, what has happened? It's gonna be total chaos down here on the world. And there will be, I believe personally, I can't prove this. I can't, I mean, I don't know. I may be proven wrong. It's just my opinion. I believe that somewhere in the shadows today is the Antichrist. Now, his his name's not, people aren't calling him Antichrist. That's what he is. He has a name. I believe he's probably living somewhere in Europe today. And immediately after Christians are taken to heaven, the Antichrist, this charismatic, smooth-talking, influential, you talk about an alpha male, Kurt, you talk about that, will emerge and say, look what's happening in the world. It's total chaos. People are disappearing. We don't even know what's happening. And you people down in the Middle East, Hamas, you have as your stated objective to destroy Israel. 
Israel, you have as your state objective now to root out and destroy Hamas. And this world leader will say, if we don't come together, we're gonna kill each other. Those of us who are left are gonna be killed. We've got to come together. And we read in Daniel chapter nine and verse 27 that after the Antichrist emerges as the leader, this is immediately after the rapture of the church, he will make a covenant of peace with the nation of Israel and really with everybody. And as part of that peace deal, he will say to the Jews, you can rebuild your temple. You've not had, did you know the Jewish people have not had a temple since 70 AD? They don't have a temple. Jewish people today worship in synagogues, not a temple. They have no temple. And so the Antichrist, you can imagine how he will garner the support of the Jews when he said, when he says, after all these hundreds and thousands of years, now you can rebuild your temple in Jerusalem on the temple mount where Solomon built that temple so long ago. Well, that, that will appeal to the Jews. And he'll say to the Muslims or to the Arabs, we're not sure exactly what he's saying, and you can have this and you can live here. And he'll make some kind of a peace treaty. And the Bible says halfway through those seven years, three and a half years through, he's gonna turn against the Jews. He's gonna persecute the Jews. Why? Because the Antichrist hates the Jews. Why are the Jewish people the most hated people on the planet? Did you know that before October the 7th, and hatred for Jews is, is way worse now than it was then, but before October the 2nd, 7th, 60% of religious persecution in the world was directed to Jewish people. Why is this? Because the devil hates the Jews. The devil hates the Jews. The Jews are God's chosen people. Jesus was born, Jesus is a Jew. I mean, the Savior came uh, from a Jewish family. He came to the nation of Israel. One day he's coming back to the nation of Israel. And so the devil hates everything that God loves. He hates the church. He hates Christians. He hates peace. He hates harmony. He hates order. Anything that God loves, the devil hates. And one of the things God loves is Israel. And so the devil hates it. And the Jewish people will be persecuted. But the point I'm making, the stage is being set for the end, for the end times. And, uh, just tells you how close we are to the rapture. I remember one year on one of our tours in Israel, we were going through the Jewish quadrant of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem. And our guide said, I want us to see something I've never shown you before. And he took us to a place there and showed us the furniture and other furnishings that have already been assembled for when the temple gets rebuilt. That just tells you how close we are. I mean, if you've been to Mattress Max and bought a lot of furniture, that means you fixed to buy a house somewhere. You're gonna do something with that furniture, right? Well, if the, if the Jews have got all the furniture together for the temple, I mean, that's, it, look, it's saying this is all really close to happening. And so the stage is set for a new world leader. And you say, John, how about the church? What is the significance of the church? You might even be wondering, how, was the ch how does the church have anything to do with this? This, these countries are Muslim, largely Muslim countries. There are very few Christians in, in this part of the world, at least proportionately for what we think of and we think about uh, America. But the church is well positioned like never before to communicate with our actions, with our prayers, and with our words a very clear message. And our message is one of truth and love. That is always the message of the Christian church. That is the message of the Bible, truth and love. There are a lot of people who get on the truth train, but they don't have any love. And there are other people who are on the love train 
and yet they don't have any truth. But there are not many people who are on the truth and love train. What is the truth? The truth is the land itself belongs to the Jewish people. The land belongs to Israel. But the love part is this. While God loves the Jews, listen to this. God doesn't just love the Jews. God loves the Palestinians. God loves the Arabs. God loves the Muslims. God loves Hamas. The most, whoever devised this scheme from a human perspective in, 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 from Hamas, that was wicked, that was vile, that was sinful, that was evil. But I'm telling you today, whoever that person was, that person just like you and me was made in the image of God. And God doesn't love that person any less than he loves us. Now, the image of God is marred in that person's life, but the image of God is marred in our lives. And so we have a very unique message. And the message is that God loves you. And most of the time today, if you go to a church and hear a preacher preaching what I'm preaching on today and taking a stand for Israel and for the Bible, like what I'm doing today, the truth part is exactly what I have said. But I'm telling you, the fury that would come from that place would make the people that heard the sermon leave thinking God hates Hamas, God hates the Palestinians, God hates the Arabs, and I'm telling you that's not true. God loves the world, and God has given us the responsibility to communicate to people who are like us, who are different from us, that God loves them, and that Jesus died on the cross for their sins just like Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's truth and love. And I prayed this morning before I left my house. I said, God, when I finish this sermon, I pray that for any Jews that might be in the service today, that when they leave, they would say, everything that man said was right. Everything he said was right. But I also prayed, if there be any Palestinians, any Arabs here today, even though we may not agree on the land, but other than the land, you would say, and even after I've shown you out of the Bible, you might change your mind on the land, but that you would be able to say, everything that man said was right. He wasn't preaching hatred to the to the Muslims. He wasn't preaching hatred to the Arabs. He wasn't doing that at all. He was preaching the truth, but he was preaching the truth in love. It's interesting. The city of Jerusalem, do you know what the word Jerusalem means? It means city of peace. Listen for the root word of that. Jeru shalom. Jeru shalom, the city of peace. Isn't it interesting that the city of peace has been home to more wars than any city on the face of the earth. There's no peace today in Jerusalem. We're commanded in Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God said, may they prosper who love you. Peace be within thy walls, prosperity within thy palaces. What is the church's message? What is the Christian's message? The message is the only real peace that will ever be found is found through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, he is the one who gives us peace. And one day, the prince of peace is coming back to the city of peace and he will provide and establish peace like the city of Jerusalem and like this world has never, ever known. Jesus is coming back. Now, you say, well, that'll be a good day when Jesus comes back. Finally, there'll be peace. But boy, we're not there now. Look at the world. We're coming unraveled. We are coming unraveled. But I'm telling you this. The peace that Jesus offers is available now. Several months ago in one of my sermons, I I had the book and the documentation. I don't have that today. But I was talking about how studies tell us that more Muslims have come to faith in Jesus Christ in recent years than at any time in the history of the world. 
And many Muslims are reporting that the reason they got saved is because they had a dream. And in their dream, a man appeared to them wearing a white robe. And in that dream, this man spoke to them about God's love and how they could have their sins forgiven. And they concluded this man is Jesus. In fact, in one of the places, these dreams amongst Muslims became so prominent that billboards were placed throughout the city. And here's what the billboard said. Have you had a dream of a man appearing to you in a white robe? If so, call this number. It was so prominent. So I told that story a few months ago, just talking about how God loves Muslims and God wants the Muslim world to be saved. After the service, a man came up to me in the family room. He said, John, I know you're talking to new members, but before you get out of here today, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, I look forward to it. And so he and I sat down to talk. And I've known this man since he started coming to our church. His name is Hussein. He's just one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. He said, John, that story you told today, he's from Lebanon, by the way. He said, that story you told today about Jesus appearing to people who are from the Muslim world in dreams, I want to just tell you by way of personal testimony, that is happening. Because he, a man in a white robe appeared to me in a dream several months ago. I said, really? I said, tell me about it. He started, I said, of course, I'm always wanting everything I can about Jesus. What did he look like? What did his eyes look like? What did his face look like? What did his hair look like? What did his voice sound like? What did his robe sound like? What was Jesus like? He's answering those questions as best he can. And I said, well, what did Jesus say to you in your dream? He said, John, in my dream, it was kind of strange, or at least I thought it was strange, a little confusing. I didn't know exactly what to do with these words, but here's what the man in the white robe said to me. He said, look for me and you will know. Look for me and you will know. And he said, I woke up and I, I knew that this had been something, this was not a normal dream. This was something special. And, and I knew that I had a word from the man in the white robe and I believe that man to be Jesus. But how do you look for Jesus? How, how, does that mean look for him in another dream? What do I do? How do I, how do I find this man, Jesus? He said, John, I never had been to First Baptist before, but I drive by this church on Fairmont all the time, going back and forth to town and work and all the things I do. I don't know anybody that goes there. Nobody's ever invited me to that church, which is an indictment on all of us because we should have. He said, I didn't know anything about the church. I just knew it was a pretty church. It was a big church. I assumed it was, was a reputable church. And he said, so I came to church one Sunday trying to do what the man in the dream told me to do, trying to look for him. He said, I came to the service. I sat at the top of the room. I heard the sermon. And I began to understand a little bit about Jesus, and he loves me, and he died for me, and my sins could, he said, my eyes weren't opened all the way that first Sunday, but my eyes were open just a little bit and things made more sense than they did before I came. He said, so I came back the next Sunday and I heard the sermon again and a little bit more, my eyes were open and, and, and you and your dad, you talk more about Jesus and I began to get new insights in this man. I'm looking for him, but I haven't found him yet. He said, on that third Sunday I came and he said, I don't know, I can't explain. He said, it's like my eyes were wide open. And on that third Sunday, he said, I understood what y'all call the gospel. That God loves all of us. 
that Jesus died for us. He shed his blood to forgive our sins. He was buried. Three days later, he rose again. He said, John, it's like my eyes were opened on that third Sunday. He said, after that sermon, when you led the prayer, I prayed the prayer. When you said, stand up if you prayed it, I stood up because I had prayed it. And a few weeks after that, I got up in that water and I got baptized. He said, I'm telling you, that man who appeared to me in my dream has changed my life. What do we learn from that? We learn that God loves the Muslims just as much as he loves us. We may, we're different. We don't view things the same. We're on polar ends of the religious spectrum. We don't need to compromise what we believe. We stand on the truth of God's word. We stand by the clear teaching of scripture. There's one way into the city of heaven and that is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But as we communicate that, we don't preach it with anger and fury and hatred and condemnation. We preach it with love and openness and acceptance and saying anybody, anywhere who wants to be saved can be saved if they'll come to Jesus confessing their sins and receiving him by faith. That gospel is for anybody. There's one door to heaven, but that door is wide open. And that door is not just a door. That door is a person. That person is Jesus. And so what do we do? We have truth. The land belongs to Israel. The nation of Israel does exist. God reassembled them and gave birth to them on May 14th, 1948. Rebirth to them. We stand with Israel. We stand against terrorism. But we do it with love. Praying not only for Jews who need to be saved but also for Arabs and Palestinians and terrorists and people from all walks of life who have never received Jesus Christ, we pray that their eyes would be open and that they too could be saved. Amen? With our heads bowed and eyes closed today, before I lead the salvation prayer, would you breathe a prayer for Israel? For the city of Jerusalem? For the Jewish people, for Prime Minister Netanyahu, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within our walls, prosperity within our palaces. God said, I will bless those who bless you. And if you turn against Israel, God said, it's not going to be good because he who touches Israel touches the apple of my eye. But now would you pray for Hamas? Would you pray somebody's eyes would be open? As my dad mentioned earlier, there are Christian ministries, Samaritan's purses setting up. There, there, are, there are people in this region of the world currently passing out tracts, telling people about Jesus in a very dangerous, dangerous place, would you pray that somebody's eyes would be opened? Would you pray for Palestinians? Would you pray for those all across the Arab world that they would know that Christians are not their enemies, that we want to be their friends? And that even though we don't agree with their religion, we love them. And we offer them the true God and we offer them real salvation through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you pray for a resolution to this war? 
an end of terrorism everywhere and peace in that region and all across the world. We talk a lot about world peace, peace between nations, sometimes peace between people. And that's all so important, but it it begins when we have peace with ourselves. And the only way that you can be at peace with yourself is to know that your sins have been forgiven and that heaven is your home. I can't be at peace with you if I'm not at peace with me. But I can't be at peace with me unless I'm at peace with God. And I can't have peace with God without placing my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And I have done that. I have confessed my sins to God and there are many. And I've asked for his forgiveness and I've received it by faith. And I have peace with God. I have peace with God. I know where I'm going when I die. I'm not scared to die because I have peace. Do you have that peace? Do you know that today, if your heart beat for the last time, do you know today that you would go from this place to heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord? Or as you sit there in that seat today, are you thinking, what would happen to me if I died? Where would I go? What would happen to me? All these billions of Christians, what if they leave and are taken up today? What, what, what about me? Well, how, can I, how can I go to heaven? I'm telling you right now how you can go to heaven. By asking God to forgive your sins. By asking Jesus to save you. To come into your heart. By trusting him to do that. Committing your life to him. That's how you get saved. That's the only way to get saved. You say, John, I want that peace. I need that salvation. Pray this prayer. Lord Jesus... I didn't intend on being saved today. Some might even say, I didn't even know I needed to be saved. But God, I know now, I want to have that peace. And I know it must come only from the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. That's it. I ask you to save me. And now say this, I trust you to do it. That seals it. For those of you who say, John, I pray that prayer every week. No, don't pray that prayer every week. Pray that prayer one last time today. And at the end of it, say, Jesus, I trust you to save me. If we pray that prayer every week, it just means we're not really trusting Jesus. But if we trust him, we don't have to keep praying. it. We can just say, thank you, God, I've already prayed it. I trust you to save me. Somebody today say this to you, Jesus, I trust you and you alone to be my savior. 